Well, the book of Acts and the gospel that bears his name were both written by Luke. And there is a second century prologue to the third gospel that gives us a personal peek at its author. It reads as follows. Luke was a Syrian from Antioch, a doctor by profession, a disciple of the apostles. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom. Serving the Lord blamelessly, he never had a wife, he never fathered children, and he died at the age of 84, full of the Holy Spirit. And let me draw your attention to that last phrase, full of the Holy Spirit. Acts is the story of how Jesus continued to do and teach through the outpouring and filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is why it's interesting, so interesting to me, what said of Luke, he died full of the Holy Spirit. Apparently Luke practiced what he preached. He took the Father's promise seriously and he lived his life filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Boy, I hope you and I die full of the Holy Spirit. The early church wasn't a perfect church, but they possessed the key ingredients that all churches need. They had an overcoming joy. They believed in a truth worth dying for. They loved each other like family. And there was a supernatural quality to all their interactions. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we're told that God blessed his first church with great grace and great power. Tonight we're going to read about both. We're going to study from chapter 2 down through chapter 4, verse 31. Of course, the last time we saw how the Father fulfilled his long-awaited promise on those gathered in the upper room. On the Feast of Pentecost, the sound of a rushing wind filled the room. Flickers of fire hovered over the heads of the disciples. A miracle of language accompanied the filling of 120 disciples with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's when Peter provided the crowd a biblical explanation of what had happened. He followed it with a sermon that cut them to the heart, the Scripture says. His listeners begged Peter, what must we do? And his answer was simple, repent. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Wow, what a great start to a church plant. On the very first day, 3,000 souls were added. But notice what they were saved from. We usually conclude that we're saved from sin and sin's effects. But Peter, understand, has a broader view of salvation. He exhorts his listeners, be saved from this perverse generation. There is a spirit within the culture from which we need to be saved. Since all humans are born in sin, each new generation is tainted with a perverse or with a twisted nature. It gets displayed in different ways, but rebellion, independence from God, underlies society. Peter saw salvation in Christ as a way to escape this surrounding twistedness. When saved, we transfer from man's kingdom to God's kingdom. 
We're saved to live together with a new set of values. We're saved from a perverse generation. And verse 42 outlines the values of the first church. Here's what occupied these early Christians. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Church life didn't revolve around committee meetings and political rallies. In social clubs, Luke doesn't mention softball games or Zumba classes or Weight Watchers group, although I'm sure some of these activities have their place. What strikes me about life in the early church is that it was both simple and spiritual. The early church swirled around four basic activities. First, they delved into the scriptures. They couldn't get enough of God's word. They taught and studied the Bible. Hey, they were Bible junkies. Second, they fellowshiped and they spent quality time with each other. The emphasis among them was on knowing and being known, loving and being loved. And then third, they broke bread together or they took communion. They worshiped God at the Lord's table and in other ways as well. And then fourth, they prayed. They learned to pray as one voice. The church that prays together stays together. And it's interesting, that was it. The church calendar wasn't full of superfluous, temporary stuff. They were all about big ideas, the word, worship, fellowship, and prayer. Here's an outline of what they did. They learned of God, they loved on God, they shared in God, and then they spoke with God, and they did it all together, and it was a beautiful thing. Their church was all about God. That's what I hope our church is all about. And notice the results of this sticking, of them sticking to this agenda. We're told, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. I mean, this was a group that was serious about their faith, and God validated their faith by working wonders and signs among them. You know, when a ch- church is sincere, God sanctions it with the miraculous and with the supernatural. And indeed, in addition, there was a great love as well. Notice verse 44. For now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. You know, it's easy to talk about being a spiritual family, but boy, the church in Acts, they put their money where their mouth was. They actually sold their resources and they pooled their money to meet each other's needs. They functioned on the logic. If Jesus gave all he had for us, how can we not give what we have to each other? You know, some observers called the early church the first expression of communism. But not so. This was communism, not communism. Communism is forced sharing. Resources are taken from the rich and they're given to the poor. Here they freely, they voluntarily combine their resources. The rich had a love for the poor and they gave. Actually, their form of communism might not have been the best strategy. There may actually have been a better way to meet the needs of the people than they're selling all things and pooling their resources. For later, we're going to find in the book of Acts that a famine will strike Judea. 
And it's interesting that the Gentile churches are going to be asked to collect an offering for the first church, the church in Jerusalem. Apparently, the Jerusalem church wasn't on a solid enough footing to weather the storm of the financial crisis. And it could have gone back to how they pooled these resources in the beginning. It could be that their abandonment of personal property and ownership had crippled their ability to endure the hardships that later came. Remember, God never commands us to pool our resources. He only commands us to show love and generosity toward one another. Commonism might not have been the best strategy. Well, verse 46 tells us, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, I've heard it put, a healthy church will be growing larger and growing smaller at the same time. This was the dynamic combination that existed in Acts. Notice, on the one hand, they enjoyed the excitement generated by the large meeting with lots of people. This occurred in the temple. All the people gathered together. But then they also cultivated more intimate fellowship in small groups that met in the homes. It was the larger and the smaller dynamic that combine to produce the optimal spiritual growth. This is what we try to do here at Calvary Chapel. We have our weekly Bible studies on Sunday and Wednesday where we ask everyone to come. And then we have our small group gatherings. The after and the timeout and the ladies' Bible studies and the OFC and et cetera, et cetera. We need the larger groups and the smaller groups. The two work in tandem to create a strong and healthy church. And notice the results of all this. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added, notice. The Lord did the adding. There was no striving on the church's part. There were no programs. There were no big membership pushes. It was God doing his supernatural work. And I believe it's true. When any church becomes a healthy church, God will add to that church. I believe that. When any church is a healthy church, God will add to that church, just as he did here. He added daily those who should be saved or who were being saved. Then chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. In other words, 9 a.m. Now recall, Peter and John were Jews, as were all the first Christians. And they still live by Jewish custom. And one of the Jewish rituals was to pray for an hour in the temple three times a day. At 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 in the afternoon. Devout Jews living in Jerusalem would suspend their normal activities. And they would come up to the temple for these times of prayer. It was the people's daily ritual. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, that is crippled since birth, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now, sadly, there wasn't any vocational training for the disabled in the first century Jerusalem. And so all a paralytic could do was to beg. And so every morning, this man's caregivers would put him on a stretcher, they would cart him to the temple, and they would lay him out by the gate, and let him just beg the day away. And notice they placed him strategically at the gate beautiful. 
This was the entrance into the inner court. This was the spot that got the most traffic in the temple. For just inside the gate beautiful, there were 13 trumpet-shaped offering boxes. And so notice what this beggar's doing. He's a smart guy. See, he's positioning himself right by the offering boxes. He's hoping to catch some devout Jews while they've got a few coins in their hand. So he can pounce on them and, and kind of jingle his cup, you know, while they have the opportunity to give. Well, verse 3 speaks of the lame man. Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And so that he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now realize, this man was a professional beggar. He was as callous toward the people walking by as the people were toward him. He never looked anyone in the eyes. His head hung down. That was part of the, the posture. I mean, he was looking only for expensive sandals. That's what he was looking for. He would see a pair of expensive shoes and he'd shake his cup in their, their direction. And these worshipers were as oblivious to him as he was to them. They may have dropped a coin in the cup, but they never locked eyes with each other. What was it? that caused Peter to fix his eyes on the beggar. What was it? I mean, perhaps a dozen different beggars were working this same spot in the temple that day. Why did Peter lock on to him? We don't know. It was probably a mixture of love, of the Spirit's leading, of Peter's own openness, of the gift of faith. But suddenly, Peter felt a tug in the direction of this crippled man. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Earlier, Peter and John had sold their possessions and pooled their resources. He wasn't lying. They no longer had any silver and gold of their own. But they had something much more valuable and much more powerful. The stories told of the Pope and Thomas Aquinas. One day the Pope was counting his money. He was there counting the money in the church coffers when Aquinas entered the room. The Pope pointed to his cachet of treasure and he said, Thomas, look at this. We can no longer say, silver and gold, have I none. Thomas Aquinas responded, yes, and neither can we say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's a sad indictment against the church when we substitute prosperity for power, when we put more of our trust in our money than in miracles. No amount of money can buy what we need most, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 and he, that is Peter, took him, that is the lame man, by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Now in the Greek, the wording used by Dr. Luke implies that the man's inability to walk was due to severely dislocated ankles. That's where the healing occurs, notice. 
in his feet and ankle bones. They both receive strength. Now, whenever I read this passage, I always marvel at Peter's faith. For Peter was a man just like you and me. Imagine the thoughts that raced through his mind just before he grabbed that lame man's hand. What if he doesn't stand up? What if his legs collapse under him? What if this doesn't work? I'll be accused of humiliating a handicapped fellow. A thousand what-ifs raced through Peter's mind. They would have raced through my mind. Yet he felt the leading of the Holy Spirit so strongly that he refused to second-guess himself. He took a risk to obey God. Hey, spiritually speaking, Peter is walking on water again. But this time he refuses to take his eyes off Jesus. You know, we all want to walk on water, don't we? Don't we all want to participate in this kind of miraculous power? I do. We all want to be involved in some supernatural surfing from time to time, participating in God's miracles. But it takes faith. It always takes faith. We've got to be willing to set aside our fears and muster a little courage and pray some bold prayers and take a step when the Spirit nudges us. Do you have faith? So Peter grabs this man's hand and he lifts him up. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And notice the instantaneous and completeness of this miracle. Not only had the man's ankles been dislocated, surely his leg muscles had atrophied from decades of immobilization. Normally, it would have taken weeks of physical therapy for him to regain his balance and use his legs, even after he'd been healed. Yet just seconds after the miracle, this man is running and leaping and bouncing all over the temple. See, Jesus is not only a great physician, he's also quite a physical therapist. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat bagging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. I mean, they put two and two together. They identified who this man was. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, and notice, I love this. He holds on to Peter and John. He had been plagued by lame legs, but he sure wasn't a lame brain. That's for sure. For rather than run home to show off his new wheels, he held on to Peter and John. He realized there was more that he can learn from these two men, surely. You know, it's vital when God ever does a miracle in your life that you hold on to it for a while. For often when God works in our lives, he does so with a purpose attached. You know, we revel in the results without realizing that there are lessons that come with the miracle. This man's legs had been healed, but his heart was still open to what he could learn. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And Solomon's porch was the portico right across from the beautiful gate, east of the gate beautiful. 
And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Peter begins to preach. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now how refreshing it is for Peter to so quickly disavow any personal responsibility for this miracle. You know, Peter's earlier failures had no doubt humbled him. There was no longer any lingering in the limelight, not for Peter. I mean, he and this lame man aren't going to be appearing together on Christian television. There's not going to be a photo shoot in his ministry's newsletter next month. Peter's not even going to start a healing ministry. Peter knows where this power comes from. It's not from him. Instead, he begins to proclaim the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He reminds them that they had rejected Jesus. Pilate was ready to let him go. But they had rejected. They had called for Jesus' execution. This miracle was meant to focus them on that issue. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witness. What an irony. The Jews killed the Prince of Life. Killed the Prince of Life. But God has now raised him up and he's still knocking at their heart's door. Walter Wink once said this, Killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head. Jesus ascended to the Father, but he returned in the person of the Holy Spirit, no longer confined by human limitations. He reveals himself today in countless hearts and in every corner of the planet. Peter is confronting the Jews here. They can't duck Jesus. He won't go away. You can even kill him, and he's not backing off. He's on you, like white on rice. His love keeps him coming, hoping you'll repent, hoping you'll surrender your life to him. And then verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, and his name was the powerful name of Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter doesn't even take credit for the faith that has been exercised. Even the faith he exhibited had come from Jesus. It was the faith that came from him. See, I believe Peter's faith here was a special gift of faith. It was the gift of faith spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. You know, there Paul is listing various spiritual gifts when he writes, and to another wonder-working faith. See, when you need a miracle, don't just pray for the miracle. Pray for the faith to receive the miracle. Pray for wonder-working faith. God will give you the gift of faith. There is such a thing as a supernatural gift of faith. 
You remember Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, if you have faith as a mustard seed, a little bitty mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Understand that a mustard seed is first planted in the soil. Then it takes root. Then it begins to sprout. And likewise, the gift of faith is a planted faith. It doesn't come from you. It comes from outside of you. And it gets planted in you. The Holy Spirit sows it in the soil of our heart so that with it we can move mountains. But it's not our faith. It's the gift of faith that's given to us. This kind of faith is a strong faith. This is the kind of faith that's dead to doubts and dumb to discouragements and blind to impossibilities. To do great things for God, pray that he'll give us his faith. He says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now, Peter shows some pity on the Jews here. He says their rejection of Jesus wasn't simply willfulness. It was the result of their ignorance. And this is hopeful. Hey, they can do this again. This time they can repent. He gives them a second chance in essence. He says, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, a point here. Notice, unlike chapter 2, verse 38, this invitation does not include baptism. Notice that. If baptism had been essential for salvation, Peter would have been sure to mention it, but he doesn't. His emphasis here, as in chapter 2, is repent. Repentance is more than remorse or regret. Repentance is the willingness to change. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not the power to change. We lack that power. That's why we need Jesus. But repentance is me providing God the willingness to change. He gives me the power, but I have to provide the willingness. And I love God's response to our repentance. It's threefold. He converts. When we repent, he turns us around. He gives us new drives and new desires, a new nature. He converts us. Then he blots out. I love this. The Holy Spirit is like those bounty paper towels. The Holy Spirit is the quicker picker-upper. He's multiplied. He soaks up the deepest stains. He cleans up all sin and that mess we've made. And then he sends us times of refreshing. For the Holy Spirit is like a warm day after a cold winter. Suddenly you can open up the windows again. You can let in the fresh air. A rejuvenation occurs. He puts a smile on your face, a bounce in your step. New possibilities are in the air. This is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he has for you and me. He converts us and he blots out our sin and he sends times of refreshing. If you know Jesus, you know all three. Verse 20 and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, 
Whenever I give an invitation to come to Christ, I track with Peter up until verse 20. I tell people, repent. Repent and you'll be converted. Your sins will be blotted out. And times of refreshing will come. But I would never go on and say what Peter says here. Repent and Jesus will return. And he'll restore all that sin has destroyed. Yet on this day, that is exactly what Peter promises the Jews. He promises them the end times, the coming of Jesus Christ. His terminology, the times of restoration of all things, is an idiom of the kingdom age, a future time when Jesus will return and reign over this earth. Peter is saying to Israel on the day of Pentecost, if you get saved, all God's promises will be fulfilled right here, right now, today. It's amazing. In the days of their exile in Babylon, God had promised the Jews a new covenant. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even the prophet Joel promised Israel the three R's, I like to call them. God would regather the Jews to their homeland. He would regenerate their evil hearts with new life. And then he would restore to them the kingdom. Regather, regenerate, restore. At this point in history, they had been regathered to the land. Through Jesus, regeneration, the new birth was now possible. The third promise was the physical kingdom. Now apparently, if Israel had repented, and if they had believed, they could have had what was next. They'd been regathered, they'd been regenerated. What was next? The restoration of the kingdom. They could have had it. On the horizon was the return of Jesus and the restoration of the kingdom. If they had received Jesus this day, the end time scenarios would have been activated. It's a provocative thought, but if Israel in mass had received the gospel at the Feast of Pentecost, the church could have been raptured at the end of Acts chapter 3. At that time, the Gentile world would have been plunged into great tribulation, and according to Daniel, seven years later, Jesus would have returned. That is exactly what Peter is implying. Now, historians tell us that in the year 40 A.D., the Roman emperor Gaius, or Caligula, as he's known by secular historians, he dispatched a legion of soldiers to Palestine along with a likeness, a statue of his likeness. Orders were given to erect this statue in the Holy of Holies within the temple precincts and require the Jews to worship the emperor. You remember a key event in Daniel's vision of the end times will be the Antichrist desecration of the temple. Daniel talks about how the Antichrist will one day set up his image in the temple and force the world to worship him. Apparently, the scenario was already in play, and it all could have happened in 40 AD. If the Jews had accepted Peter's offer of salvation, God was prepared to set in motion the end times prophecies at that time. As it turns out, the Jewish leaders, they rejected the gospel. And Caligula was assassinated before his statue arrived in Caesarea. As a result, his soldiers returned to Rome with their statue. 
when the Israeli leaders rejected Peter's invitation, God put a pause. He put a pause on the end times prophecies. And he reached out to a different group of people. Who? The Gentiles. And this is where we've been on God's timetable ever since. We're in a holding pattern. We're waiting on the last of the Gentiles to be saved so God will turn his attention back to the Jews. And this also explains Peter's quotation from Joel chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Do you remember that passage we talked about? We talked about the judgment coming that seems so out of place. Well, in his mind, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a companion with the final judgment. This is why he spoke of wonders in heaven, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. It all would have happened if the Jewish nation had believed, but they didn't. Today, God is reaching the Gentiles. But one day, the invitation of Peter will be repeated to the Jewish nation. This time, they'll trust in Jesus as their Messiah. All Israel will be saved, Paul says in Romans 11, and God will release his finger on the pause. And the end time scenarios will continue. Verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things Whatever he says to you, the prophet, the prophet like Moses was actually Jesus. And it shall be that every soul will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Peter is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, all of God's promises were targeted toward Peter's generation. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. You know, Jesus taught that the gospel was to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And this was echoed by the early church. It's being echoed here. You remember everywhere Paul goes, he goes to the synagogue of the Jews first. He targeted the Jews first. But eventually, the Jews rejected Jesus. And Christianity, our emphasis became outreach to the Gentiles. In chapter 4, we see the tragic response by the Jewish hierarchy to Peter's message. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now recall the Sadducees. This was a sect of Jews who were anti-supernatural. They rejected the notion of miracles, and they refused to believe in the afterlife. Thus they opposed any talk of resurrection. And it's time for a joke now. That's why they were sad, you see. The Sadducees? Okay. You remember while Jesus was on earth, his primary opposition came from the Pharisees. They didn't like his application of the law and his disregard for tradition. But the early church 
preach Jesus' resurrection. So their chief opposition came from the Sadducees. Verse 3, and they lay hands on them. That is Peter and John. And this is not for prayer. They lay hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Notice the growth rate of the early church. It's pretty impressive. And none of this is conversion. This is all conversion growth. None of this is transferring people from one church to the other, like so much of church growth is today, because there were no other churches at the time. In just a few days, the church in Jerusalem went from 120 in the upper room to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost to now 5,000 men. And that's not including the women and children. It could have been 15,000 total people by this point. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, And as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. All the bigwigs came out for this. The family of Annas was an extremely powerful Jewish family. You remember after being arrested, Jesus appeared before Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and his sons held the highest positions in Judaism. As a matter of fact, five sons served as high priest at one time or another. In temple Judaism, nepotism ruled the roost. But when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And that was a strategic question on their part. Deuteronomy 13 warns that a false prophet with demonic powers can come and can work miracles to draw people away from Yahweh, the one true God. And such a person was to be stoned to death. Thus, it was up to the Sanhedrin... That's that's who's meeting here, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish bigwigs, their court. It was up to them to ask, in whose name was this miracle performed? That was the question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and notice it's happened to him again. He's filled with the Holy Spirit once more. He said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel... If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Again, notice Peter's boldness. This is what the filling of the Holy Spirit provides a Christian Fearless courage. Recall to Christ, it means Messiah. It means anointed one. Peter is here telling the Jews, your Messiah came. He was crucified, but God has raised him from the dead. Whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. And then verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And here Peter quotes a familiar psalm. 118, verse 22. Jesus was the stone who was rejected by the architects of Judaism, yet he became the foundation stone of the church. And then he says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Exclusive? 
Yes. Ambiguous? No. Without any hesitation, without any fuzziness or cloudiness or murkiness, Peter makes it crystal clear, without Jesus, a person is lost and damned forever. Only by the name of Jesus can a person be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Now Annas' family, they'd been trained in the elite yeshivas, whereas the apostles were the blue-collar types, uneducated folks, fishermen. These were the Harvard scholars versus the high school dropouts. That's what was going on. Yet the disciples were the ones who spoke with clarity and authority, not the not the chief priests. At first, the Jewish elite was stunned. How can this be? Then they realized that they had been with Jesus. And friends, this is the key. Fluency in Greek, mastery of systematic theology, proficiency in comparative religion, seminary stuff. It has some value, but none of it is ever a substitute for being with Jesus and spending time with Jesus. You know the meaning of the letters PhD. Piled high and deep. That's what a formal education, that's what a formal theological education is. That's what it's worth if the person who gets it hasn't been with Jesus. Spending time in the halls of higher learning is not nearly as important is spending time at the feet of Jesus. Hey, there's value in these things. But what Peter and John possessed made what they lacked totally obsolete. They had what it took. They'd been with Jesus. Verse 14, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. <laughs> I mean, this lame man... Just himself. He's over there wiggling his toes. He's bouncing about. He's shaking his limbs. He's wiggling his toes. I mean, this is irrefutable evidence, is it not? Him just standing there. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on, they speak to, man, to no man in this name. Let's just talk about ignoring the evidence. A few weeks earlier, the Jews thought that this Jesus movement would die out if they killed the leader. So much for that. There's new sprouts taking root. You recall what Jesus said in John 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And this is what's happening now. A harvest is beginning. And the Jews realize that it can't be stopped. And so they called them, that is, the two disciples. And they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. The Jews tried to intimidate them into silence. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
Peter says, man, I have no other choice. He had been commanded by God to add speech to his faith. He has to speak out. Let me ask you, what thoughts cross your mind when someone tries to silence your witness? Oh, this could cost me my job. Wait a minute, this is going to hurt my popularity. I better not push this issue. I mean, what thoughts are you thinking? None of that should matter, guys. Is it ever right for us to listen to man more than God? Is it ever right to do that? Of course not. How can we be silent about what God has done? So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. I mean, even Christianity's critics marveled over this miracle. Couldn't be denied. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And remember, he'd been lame from birth. This was a stunning miracle. Albert Camus once said, What the world expects of Christians is that Christians should speak out loud and clear in such a way that never a doubt, never the slightest doubt, could arise in the heart of the simplest man. And in my opinion, that's a perfect description of the witness of the early church, especially what happened that day. Verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They probably returned to the upper room. That seemed to have been their headquarters. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, And here, pay attention. What action do they take after they've been threatened? Do they protest? Do they boycott? Do they file a lawsuit? Do they arrange a Facebook campaign? They pray. They pray. They fight back by praying. As the old saying goes, when your knees knock, Kneel on them. That's what the early Christians did. And here's their prayer. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. First, notice they get their eyes on God. Their starting point isn't their fears. It's not their enemy. It's their God. He made all things. He knows all things. God can do all things. They get their eyes on God. That's the first thing we should do when we pray. C.S. Lewis once said, The first prayer of all prayers is, May it be the real God to whom I pray, and may it be the real real me who prays. The church reminds itself here that their God is sovereign. He's sovereign over every situation. There's nothing he can't do. And then they turn to the word. Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, and they quote Psalm 2. Why did the heathen rage, did the nations rage, and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. God had foresaw how the rulers would gang up on Jesus. The Lord wasn't caught off guard when the nations raged. 
For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. On that fateful night, Herod and Pilate and the priest, they thought they were in charge. In reality, these power brokers were puppets on a string, fulfilling God's purposes. And nothing had changed over the last few months. God was still the boss. And so they pray, verse 29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now, I've got to admit, this is not how we usually pray. When we face persecution, we ask God to take it away, don't we? But that's not what happens here. Some of us would ask God for wisdom so that we'll know how to appease the authorities and live in harmony and peace. We pray something like, well, Lord, help us go along and get along. Show us some nice, low-key approach here, Lord. That'll take the attention off us. But That's not how this church prays. They say, Lord, stretch out your hand. Do even mightier and, and, and more powerful miracles. That people will see, that people will know. Winston Churchill once said, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. Rather than appeasement, this church prays for boldness and for victory. They say, look, look on their threats, Lord. But make us a greater threat by speaking your word and doing your works through us, healings and signs and wonders. Rather than lay low, these men up the ante, man. Rather than pray for protection, they pray for courage and a broader impact. The old Puritan Phillips Brooks once said, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. And in verse 31, God answers their prayer in a very emphatic way. Luke records, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The foundation of the building started to shake. Walls wobbled. The floor did the wave. The disciples caught Another spiritual gust, and again, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it resulted in a desire to even speak more boldly. Remember, these are many of the same people who were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, two chapters later, they're getting filled with the Spirit again. You know, R.A. Torrey once said, We need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I am sometimes asked, have you received the second blessing? Yes, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and a hundreds besides. And I'm looking for a new blessing today. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a point-in-time experience, but it is not a one-time experience. 
There are multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. This is why all Christians need to continually be seeking the power of the Holy Spirit.